0: you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you back to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, if you'd be so kind as to find verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It is a wonderful thing to gather again and to celebrate the very thing we celebrated last week. It's the thing that's driving Paul in this chapter, for those of you who are guests We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse. We find ourselves in chapter 15 because it is one of the greatest chapters on the implications of the resurrection found in the New Testament. And repeatedly in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the phrase in vain. I've been teaching you there are three definitions or uses of the word vain. The first one we're most familiar with, someone who's full of themselves there, vain. The second two are similar and they strike at the meaning Paul is communicating. Marked by futility, our English dictionary would say, ineffectualness, unsuccessful, useless, vain efforts to escape. And then the third derivation of it, having no real value, idle or worthless, vain pretensions. It is that That is the heart of Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15, because the Corinthian church was facing a major doctrinal problem. The ancient world rejected bodily resurrection, yet, bodily future resurrection is the hope of the gospel. People were trying to merge the two beliefs together. You see this often in our culture today. People taking the conversation of the culture and trying to baptize it in some new version of Christianity. This is why truth and doctrine matter. I'm not asking you to enter into a relationship with doctrine or words or even your Bible The people who were baptized a few minutes ago did not pray to receive the Bible into their heart. They did not simply ascend to a mental affirmation of some doctrinal beliefs. Some of the greatest New Testament scholars alive today who understand the idiosyncrasies of language, the nuance of syntax, are atheists. You don't have to believe God to study the Bible But when you study the Bible with an open heart, you'll end up believing God because he uses his word. And his word is important because even though we're invited into a relationship with Christ, that relationship must be founded on truth, unchanging, unadulterated truth. And one of the truths of our relationship with the Lord is that this is not the end. And even when we pass from this world, our soul joining the Lord, our body being laid to rest, that is not the end. The resurrection of Jesus assures us, as we have articulated the last few weeks, a future real bodily resurrection of our own. Now, Paul, being a master communicator, did something last week as we celebrated Easter at Church at the Mill. He went down a hypothetical discussion of If Christ was not raised, and now he turns his attention toward an even better message. If last week Christ was not raised, this week is really a few verses telling us what's going to happen because he was, in fact, raised. Anybody like Pearl Jam? I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and in 1994, which would have been my sophomore, junior year of high school. I graduated in 96. High school was the best five years of my life. I graduated in 96. But uh, in 1994, Pearl Jam released their most famous album. And on that album, Eddie Vedder, the lead singer, had written a song called Better Man. And it's a lament. The song's actually clean. I I never use a song that's not in a sermon. I went and studied the lyrics to make sure. I remembered the tagline, she can't find a better man. She thinks she's in love with him. She can't find a better man. And it's written from the perspective of a woman who has a husband in a struggle, and he's not willing to change, and she's tied herself to him, and she's basically settled. She's brokenhearted because she can't find a better man. It is their most favorite song. Many of you will go listen to it on iTunes today because I said it. Some of you will be taken back to 1994, and you'll do your bangs up in a big ball and tight roll your jeans, and you'll be jamming to Pearl Jam. You know, the whole world is looking for a better man. The NFL is looking for a better quarterback. The NBA is looking for a better forward, shooting guard. Baseball teams are looking for better hitters, Corporations are looking for better CEOs. I understand Bud Light's looking for some better folks. (laughs) Everybody's looking for better. Everybody's looking for better. When we get to this passage this morning, we find that Jesus is just the better man. He's just the better man. In fact, you won't find a better man. And this is what Paul does. If the first few verses we dealt with last week is this lament, if Christ was not raised, if Christ was not raised, if Christ was not raised. Verse 20 drives a stake in the ground. It's this joyful outburst. Look what it says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. He's the better man. Look what the passage says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's a reference to Adam, the first man. And verse 24 or verse 23 tells us this. Verse 22, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, verse 23, those who belong to Christ. Now look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But... When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that's a reference to God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him who is Christ. Don't worry, we'll sort it out in a minute. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. He's a better man. What does that mean? I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to show you the last slide of this sermon. It simply says this. The end of all things gives today meaning and makes today matter. There are two extremes when we think about the end times. One extreme is infatuation. These are the preachers that have the big diagrams and uh, the lizards and the dragons and the lions, and, and they try to make every connection under the sun, and they take liberty with the text that's not there, and they build their ministries off prophetic predictions and They find congregations of people interested in the end times, but they become too infatuated with it that they forget you're supposed to live for Jesus today. The other end of the spectrum is people who are indifferent to it. Ah, you know, that's confusing to me. I don't understand all that. My grandmother could explain it. She had her Schofield Study Bible, and she understood. But I I, I don't really get into all that. That scares me. Neither of those is healthy. We ought not be so infatuated with the end times that we're no good today. But we also aren't to be ignorant or indifferent to what's going to take place. Because when I know the ending and I understand the beginning, it makes sense of my today. It helps me in navigating the decisions and the priorities and the struggles that you and I are surely going to face right now. This is why I think it's fascinating that the week after Easter, we come again to a passage about the resurrection, but the resurrection has implications to what's coming later. And it really hinges on him being the better man. Let me show you. He is first. He's the first man standing. That's why he's the better man. He's the first man standing. Look what the passage says in verse twenty. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But then notice the title. Paul calls Christ metaphorically the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's some symbolic language there, but when you unpack it, it makes so much sense. Those who have fallen asleep is a respectful reference to the dead in Christ. We know that Literally speaking, when someone sleeps, they will wake again. Some of you will be asleep this afternoon, about 3.30. And when your wife walks by and sees you asleep, she may or may not end your nap, depending on the mood that she's in. She may ask you to do something, or she may tell you you need to go get something ready, or she may leave you alone and then wait till you wake up, and then she'll say, Oh, you're finally up. Why don't you take the kids for a little while? I need to sit down. When I see someone asleep, it is obvious to me they are not dead. They will wake again. Well, because the entire human world understands that a sleeping person will one day wake, Paul grabs that word sleep and he respectfully uses that to describe death in Christ. He says the dead in Christ are sleeping in the Lord. They've fallen asleep in the Lord. Their spirit is with the Lord. They're not in limbo and their body has been laid to rest. Now we know literally speaking death has come. The body will decay. The remains will not last. The soul will forever. But even that is temporary because one day the body will be resurrected. And so Paul says, Jesus is the first man standing because he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But it is the first fruits that's the most fascinating description. It comes from the book of Leviticus when God is giving the people of the Old Testament the law through Moses. The Bible says in Leviticus 23:10 Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, he's talking about the promised land. When they come into the promised land and they plant their vineyards and they plant their fruits and they plant their orchards and they plant their wheat fields, and their barley, their grain, and they reap the harvest. The scripture says, You shall bring the sheaf of first fruits. Sheaf was a measurement, the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest. To the priests. Now, when you think about that, you may go, I get that. That's sort of like the New Testament tithe, the idea of bringing your first fruits to the Lord. But what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, when it comes to the payment of death and the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is the first fruits. And that implies three truths. One, he's first. Now, I've told you this before. Remember this. Jesus was not the first person God ever resurrected. Jesus himself resurrected people. Remember Lazarus? He brought Lazarus out of the grave. He raised a little girl to life who had died. The Bible affirms that other people had been resurrected after death. The difference is all those people died again. All those people died and are dead today with the Lord, but their bodies are dead and have long since decayed. Jesus is first in that he's the first person to be resurrected to never die again, and will never die again. And every person who experiences the bodily resurrection in Christ will forever abandon a grave or the fear of a grave. But also, first communicates kind in nature. There is no difference between the first apples picked and the apples picked on the second day. There's no difference between the first collection of barley or grain and the barley or grain cut and threshed on the second day. The idea being that those in Christ who follow him will be of his same resurrected nature, not of his deity. I'm not suggesting that when we're resurrected on the great resurrection day that we turn into the Son of God like Christ. No, that would be blasphemy. But we do experience the glorified, sinless bodies we were intended to have before the fall of man. So just like the Son of God is a welcomed, honored guest in heaven, assuming his role again within the Trinity, we are welcome and honored in heaven to be celebrated. In fact, the Scripture calls him our brother. And that we are sons and daughters of the triune God because the Lamb of God has covered our sins. We are of the same kind and nature. But there's one more meaning which is so good. It's the pledge or the promise. Did did you know that World War I was not called World War I until there was a World War II? It was just called a World War. In fact, whenever you have a first... It implies there'll be a second and a third and a fourth. So the idea that he's the first fruits means that God in heaven has harvested from the grave his blessed son, but he's coming back to pick some more folks. And so, as the first fruits, he's the first man standing. But secondly, he's the best man standing. There is this great biblical comparison between Jesus and Adam. And the correlations are beautiful and obvious. Adam was the first man made in the image of God from the dust, from the ground. God formed him and breathed into him life. He was the first man. Jesus became the best man. Both Adam and Jesus were given opportunities to be perfectly obedient, and one was. You see, before the fall, Adam could obey God or disobey God. But after the fall, he could only disobey God. He did not have the ability, due to sin, to perfectly obey the Lord. So a better man must be sent. One of the things we see when we study the Old Testament is that all of the great characters, starting with Adam, were merely foreshadows of a greater man who was to come. In fact, what Paul does in verse 21 is to draw that parallel. Look what the scripture says. He says this in verse 21, for as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The curse of sin which came through Adam is why you and I all have a grave in our future. But the grace of God which came through Christ is why we also can have a resurrection in our future. One of the greatest treatments of this comparison is found in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. I actually ask you not to take time to turn there, though you're always welcome to. I want you to listen to the word of God. Paul told Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture. I think it's important in the preaching event. At times, to read the Bible and let the Bible speak to the people. Just listen to the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And as you listen, think about Adam versus Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's the better man. So Adam's fall condemned us all. Christ's resurrection saves any who trust in him. He's the better man. But he's also the last man standing. And this is where we really wanted to get to. When I was 11 years old, there weren't many more things important to me than the WWF. And that's back when wrestling, now I differentiate wrestling and wrestling. Wrestling is actually an Olympic sport. It is phenomenal, the endurance that these athletes have. You can always tell an old wrestler, he didn't have a neck or ears. But it is phenomenal what they have. And the school that I grew up in, we didn't have wrestling. But man, on TV, we had wrestling. I mean folding chairs and barbed wire, and tables, wrestling. There's even local wrestling you could go to. Some of you met your wives there. <laughs> and the WWF was king of wrestling. And this is back before it turned into a soap opera. It's trashy now. You can't watch it. You boys, you little boys shouldn't be watching it. The girls are about naked, and the storylines aren't any good. But back then, it was just big men throwing each other around. Hulk Hogan was the king, Andre the giant, Rowdy, Roddy, Piper. Come on, somebody. Anybody know anything about wrestling? The junkyard dog. Ho ho. We won't even go into Rick. I was in a restaurant one night in Charlotte and saw Rick at a bar trying to pick up a girl. It was sad. (laughs) I did go, (laughs) woo. So, in 1988, they introduced the first ever Royal Rumble. And man, this is a big deal. No partners. All of them got in the ring, and the last man standing won the Royal Rumble. I remember I was 11 years old, and Hacksaw Jim Dugan won it. He had two eyes crossed. He carried a two before in. He was good. In fact, you can meet him today. He's at my family reunion every time I go home. (laughs) He won the first Royal Rumble. And, And here's what made the Royal Rumble so good. He had to whip everybody, not just one man. He had to whip them all, and he was the last man standing. I tell you, I couldn't help but think about that when I studied this passage. In the royal rumble of eternity, there's going to be one man standing in the ring, victorious. The battle's still going on. It's still going on. But his resurrection started his march to the ring. It did not end it. Which is why Paul does something kind of fascinating here. He he goes from Easter, past event, to your life and my life, that future resurrection in our life, to begin describing this magnificent, eternal ending where Christ will be the last man standing. Look at what happens beginning in verse 23. He says in verse 23, these words, but each in his own order. Now, he's talking about the resurrection. In other words, Christ was resurrected, and we will be resurrected. His has happened. Ours has not yet happened. There's the order. He doesn't want you to get confused. And then he says this in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, I've already explained what that means. Then at his coming, that's the second coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Now, it's fascinating, and commentators have talked about how this paragraph is not a description of all the end times. In fact, he condenses 1,000 years in the then. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Remember how those three words coming up, the rule, the authority, and the power. He gets all the glory and all the honor and all the power. And then verse 24 that's introduced this epic, eternal, royal rumble is fleshed out in verse 25. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is Death, by the way, what destroys death? Resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And Here he quotes Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Paul has liberty as an apostle to put those together. Psalm 8 speaks to God's Authority over creation, Psalms 110 speaks to God's authority over the Davidic kingdom. So you have the creation authority and the kingdom authority merging in Christ. God gave it to the Lord. He made it through the Lord. He saved it through the Lord. He'll redeem it through the Lord and he'll rule over it through the Lord. In all things, before all things, through all things, to all things, this is Christ. Which is why he says in verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death for god has put all things in subjection under his feet now paul wants to make sure our theology is straight he's not suggesting that christ is over the triune god that's why he says in verse 20 7. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. God is accepted to that. Because the things there is that which is created. God is not created. Who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him and put all things in subjection under him that God may be all and in all. If you're a little bit confused, don't worry, I was when I read it the first time. Let let me explain. It falls out really in four events, and I'll give them to you in sequence so they make sense. The first event is the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back. And then at the return, there'll be resurrection. All those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Remember, Paul told that to the Thessalonian believers. The dead in Christ will rise first. And and then there will usher in a reign of Christ over the earth from Jerusalem, where he'll establish a new throne. And that's the reign of conquest. Now, You really have a choice in our day and age. There are some people who say, well, people won't come to a modern church if you bog them down with these big words or these concepts. They need something that they can live on tomorrow. I say, that is not worth the words I just used to say it. I don't want to water anything down. I want to boil you up. I want you to understand some important terms that matter. And I don't want you to feel bad about not knowing them I want to give you an opportunity to know them. So let me give you some terms real quick. Here's a term and I'll I'll put it on the screen. This is the second coming of Christ. Let me tell you exactly what that means. The sudden, be unannounced, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ from heaven to earth. It's all those things. It's not mythical, it's not mystical, it's not announced. Anybody that tells you they know when it's coming, don't go back to their church, it's a cult. We don't know. We don't know. But it will be sudden, it will be personal, it will be visible, and it is a bodily return. It's not a revival of just movement. He himself is coming back. There's a second term, though, that's important. I'll put it on the screen. The great tribulation. Now, what is that? So let me explain it. It's a simple definition. An expression from Matthew 24, 21, referring to a period of great hardship and suffering... Prior to the return of Christ and His thousand-year reign, I'm going to get to that in just a minute on Earth. Based on Daniel 9:27, there's a prophecy in Daniel about weeks. He gives it to us in weeks. W-E-E-K-S. Weeks. Many believe the tribulation will last seven years. So you've heard people say seven years of tribulation. So so so. so. I am not one who is married to it lasting seven exact years or us knowing exactly when it will begin, but I do believe there will be a great tribulation because the Bible says there will be. Third term, this is important, millennium. You've heard the millennial reign of Christ. Let me explain what this is. Millennial means a 1,000. The period of 1,000 years mentioned in Revelation 24 and 5 as the time of the reign of Christ and believers over the earth. Okay, that's the millennial reign. Okay, now that's important. That's a 1,000-year period. So as you you think about those terms and what that means, you then begin to ask the question, what is the rapture? Well, let, let me explain what the rapture is. That word comes from a word in the original language to snatch up. My mama raptured me out of many church services right? I've often told you my book on parenting, I haven't written it yet, but the title is going to be snatch them up. We got some kids, just snatch them up, straighten them out, snatch them up. The rapture, the taking up or snatching up of believers to be with Christ when he returns to earth. That's the rapture. That's the rapture. If you ever watched the Left Behind series or read the books, the, the whole premise of the book, is that this is everybody that's left after the rapture, the unsaved, okay? Now, how does all this happen, and what order does it happen? Well, there are many, many views, and today's not the day to debate them. But I, I wanted to give you those terms because I'm going to show them to you in just a minute, some really big words, but don't be intimidated by the big words. Don't be intimidated by them, Okay? But here here are the two views that I believe most line up with Scripture. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord Jesus, who are just as saved as I am, who might not agree with this, and that's okay. The first one is pre-tribulational, premillennialism. I know you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I need another coffee. The cafe's open, but we're almost done. Notice the word pre, before the tribulation, before the millennialism. So here's what that means. This is the view that Christ will return secretly before the great tribulation to call believers to himself. The church will be disappeared, they'll be snatched out. Then the tribulation will happen. The church won't go through the tribulation. This was the tradition I was raised in. This is the tradition that many of you were raised in, where the church will be raptured out. We won't go through the tribulation. And then, and then, Again, after the tribulation to reign on earth for a thousand years, in other words, the church will not go through the great tribulation. I've put it in sequential order on the back screen, and I'm so thankful for the gift of technology. So today's present, the church will be raptured, seven years of tribulation. Then there'll be a second coming and a millennial reign. Christians will return with Christ to that day, reign of Christ, final judgment, eternal state. That final judgment is when Christ will consign all the wicked to hell and all the righteous to himself. Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire, the great beast, the dragon uh, of of revelation, in the eternal state. There is another view that's simply called post-tribulational premillennialism. These are people who believe the church will actually be called to go through the rapture. Uh, through the tribulation. They won't be raptured out. The rapture will happen at the end. It goes something like this. Present, tribulation, second coming, rapture, and millennial reign all happen together in this mysterious cataclysmic event. Reign of Christ, final judgment, eternal state. Now, this is not a study of the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, and I'm happy to discuss that with you at a later time. Here's my point. Jesus wins, and if we know him, we win. Which is why I love verse 27 verse 28. Because the son's last act as the Messiah is to bring the fully restored kingdom back to the father. And say, as the son, you called me to submit to your leadership. Jesus said, I will do my father's will. And I came, I lived, I died, you resurrected me. I prepared a place in heaven. That's what he's doing now. Jesus is still working for you. He's already paid the price, but he's doing two things for you according to the Bible. He's preparing a place for you, and he's interceding on your behalf at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. When he comes back and he defeats all the enemies of God once and for all, he then returns the kingdom back to the God of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ is not God. It means that in his office as the Son, He is the successful prince who was sent to the world and now returns with the restored kingdom in his hand. Now, I'm going to tell you what I told you earlier. Remember, because of the end, that gives today meaning and it makes today matter. Some of you walked in today feeling defeated. You may be defeated by a personal sin struggle. I I don't know. Maybe you're struggling with something. You just cannot kick a bad habit. You're struggling in your defeat. Others of you are defeated by a broken relationship that you'd love to fix. You don't know how. You're exhausted. Some of you have somebody in your life that's broken, a child in rebellion, a loved one in an addiction, someone who's just miserable, and they're making everybody around them miserable. Whenever you encounter things like that, not to mention sickness or financial struggles or the uncertainties of the world, it's not hard to get discouraged. And I think that one of the greatest misconceptions is that somehow Christians are immune from discouragement. Read your Bible. Christians, people who love the Lord God, dealt with all kinds of ups and downs. It's what we do with the discouragement. And and, and I'm I'm not saying put on a happy face and fake it. The Bible says bring your sorrows to the Lord. Sometimes I need to step out of my life. I need to back up. And I need to say, I don't know that that relationship will ever be fixed. I don't know that this person will ever turn around. I don't know that this job will ever work out. I don't know that this dream will ever become reality. I don't know that this tumor will ever shrink. I don't know. But I know the ending. I know how it ends. And because I know how it ends, and who ends it, when I look at a world of options to follow, he's the better man because he's the first man standing. He's the best man standing. And by God's grace, he'll be the last man standing. And that means when I don't know what to do, I take the next step of obedience for one reason. Because he lives.